listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. This is the right place. Are you in the right place? Um, I, I hope so. This is the podcast about guitars and guitar repair. If you were looking for a, some other podcast, then you were in the wrong place. If you're looking for the banjo podcast, that's three doors down. And if you're looking for the harpsichord podcast, that's on Thursdays. So, this is the Fret Files, the guitar workshop podcast, the Guitar repair, guitar builder, guitar... The guitar podcast. It's a guitar podcast about guitars. I'm your host, Eric Daw, and joining me, as always, here is my lovely wife, Melissa. Hi. Hello, everyone. How 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 are you today? I'm fine. Are you talking to me? Yeah. I'm well. Yeah. I'm good. And talking, the, you know, the royal you. I'm well. If you're, you're, if you're not... If you're listening to this, please answer my questions. Yeah. How how are you doing today? Show of hands, all those doing well, and all those doing good. <laughs> you're not supposed to say that, I'm doing good. That's a different thing. Right, that's Superman. Grammatically. Superman does good. Right. you got to be careful of do-gooders. Right. <laughs> They'll do you real good. Beware the do-gooder. This is a guitar podcast. I don't know what we're talking about. You know, I wanted to touch on the one of the questions I got last month. I don't feel like I fully answered it. And uh, it was the final question, I think. And it was one of the calls. And uh, a guy wanted to know, hey, Eric, what is your line? The line that you don't cross, the repair you won't do, the instrument you won't touch. And I kind of breezed through my explanation of that I don't like to do banjos and mandolins. But, you know, I thought about it later, and there's, I have so many more lines than that. You just, you just barely scratch the surface with the banjos, you know? For example, I've had crazy, crazy requests. I've had people that wanted me to put frets in between their frets. That sounds like a totally legitimate thing to do no, to your guitar. I not mean. at all. He wanted to be able to play quarter notes and whatever, half notes or whatever, half tones, quarter tones, whatever. I said, nope, sorry, I won't do that. And he got, he was actually mad. Well, it's my guitar and you work on guitars. This is what I want done. Why won't you do it? And I had to explain, look, after I, if let's let's just imagine that I did this to your guitar. At some point, you're going to realize this guitar's ruined, and then at that point, you're going to put it on Craigslist, saying, "Custom, extra fret guitar, customized by Eric Daw." 
Now my my name is forever attached to this this horrendous accident of of monumental proportions. It's 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 not something that I'm going to do. I'm I don't do crazy customizations like that. That's just an example. I had others to tell you about that I can't remember. Oh, I remember. I've had guys that wanted me to um install like super custom crazy uh like hardwired effects into their guitar like can you hollow out my entire strat and install all my pedals in my strat like i don't want to have a pedal board i want everything right here just a giant pick guard with like 17 knobs nope not gonna do that that sounds like a poor decision so you know, you get glue huffers that want you to do crazy things, and so you have to you have to put your foot down and say, if I do that, then my name is forever attached to this because it's so outlandish that anyone that sees it, their first question is, who did that? <laughs> right? In that tone. Is it not? Yeah. The answer would be, Eric Daw did that, and that's not something that I'm willing to live with. So... I won't do repairs if they're crazy off the wall, like you should probably be in a straitjacket requests. Good to know. Yeah. Next time I have something I need you to do. I'm trying to think of other things that people have asked me to do. You really do get crazy requests. Anytime somebody wants a Floyd Rose installed in a guitar that doesn't have a Floyd Rose on it, that's a no. Just not going to do it. Floyd Rose on your Les Paul, No. Floyd Rose on your telly, no. Uh, so I have a lot of lines, aside from banjos. What about, I don't, I, maybe you touched on this the last time you talked about it, but what about bloody guitars? That's another thing that I have a problem with, because people will bring me bloody guitars. I must have told you about that before. Yeah. And I will politely say, gosh, I'd love to work on your guitar, but you're going to need to rub it down with alcohol first, because I this is not a, a hospital where I I'm I I can't I don't have a biohazard suit. I'm not gonna work. I'm not gonna get a blood disease just to set up your guitar for seventy five bucks. Right. I am picky about that. I'm grumpy today. This is a grumpy podcast today. Well, it, maybe it will make it more interesting. I guess I'm not actually grumpy. Oh, I am. But ask me to set up your banjo, I get grumpy. I'm just kidding. Banjos are cool. I don't have a problem with banjos. He's lying. I've got some good banjo jokes, though. Let's hear them. What's the difference between a banjo and an onion? Do you want me to ruin the punchline? No. You're supposed to say... uh, What? What's the difference between a banjo and an onion? Oh, funny that you should ask. The difference is... Nobody cries when you cut up a banjo. (laughs) You've heard all my jokes. It doesn't work. Do you have any more? Yeah, but I can't remember how it goes. Do you? (laughs) No. You know my joke. (laughs) You already know my joke. I'm sure sure I could complete it for you if you started it, but I can't. There's a banjo player, and uh, he's late to a gig. Oh, somebody put a banjo in his car. Forget it. (laughs) There's a banjo player, and he's... he's, uh, He's hurrying off to his gig. He's got an important banjo gig. And uh, he's, he gets out to his car, and he realizes that he has, he has forgot something inside, right? So he, so, he, so he, just, he figures, well, 
I'll just leave the car running, run inside and get it, and uh, no big deal. So he so he, he leaves the banjo in the car, right? He runs inside, grabs whatever it was he needed, his his banjo music or whatever. He runs back out, and sure enough, some criminal has come by and smashed out one of the windows of his car. Then what happened? And they put another banjo in there. Criminals. I mean, is that not horrible? You see, it's funny because a banjo is so bad that a criminal, upon seeing a banjo in your car, wouldn't steal it. No, what would be worse than that? Putting another banjo in your car. Thanks, Norm. What? No. Yeah, that was that was a Norm McDonald oh, thing. Am, just I, did. am I unintentionally doing Norm McDonald? Yes. A banjo player is late to a gig. <laughs> Let's read some uh, questions. What do you say? All right. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Greetings from Portugal. I started listening to this podcast because the Fretboard Journal podcast spoke about it. I'm glad I found you. We're v- glad to. Yes, we are. Very informative and entertaining. Here are my questions. One, I love the look of vintage rusted hardware. How can I age chrome hardware without destroying it? I once tried to age a chrome bridge with m- muriatic acid. Yeah. Muriatic acid. Muriatic acid. And it started to melt from the inside mm. and ended up in the garbage. So how can I do this? It was pop metal. Oh, yeah. that's probably not good. Two, I am a guitar-building beginner, but I also want to wind my own pickups. Where can I find good wire, magnets, and other needed parts? There are some on eBay. Are they worth it? Three, what really makes a bad pickup? What can make them sound muddy and unresponsive? Any documentation you recommend? Keep the podcast coming. Daniel in Portugal. Wow, in Portugal. We are really spanning the globe. We're, we're global, baby. From the west of the nationwide. <laughs> Wait, that's more than nationwide. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question, Daniel. So, how do you age Chrome hardware without destroying it? Well, I've tried, and let me tell you, it's not easy. Nickel, nickel is where it's at. Nickel hardware ages very nicely, and it's not hard to do. Chrome hardware is really, really hard to age, and while not impossible. It is almost impossible to make it look right. The closest I've seen is um, people sometimes will put chrome hardware in a rock tumbler with a bunch of rusty bolts and whatever else gravel from the driveway. And uh, you put it in a rock tumbler and you leave it there for, th- you know, three weeks. I mean, you got to be patient to age chrome. It's really not something that you can do on the quick like you can do with nickel. Nickel, you just look at it and it ages practically. It's very easy to age. Chrome is impervious to any, I mean, any of the things that you would use to age nickel, like muriatic acid or whatever else you want to use. I I use vinegar most of the time. Uh, I mean, vinegar is not a harsh chemical. You could drink the stuff, right? Yeah. It's going to do nothing to chrome. Absolutely nothing. But muriatic acid, yeah. If you had a brass bridge or something like that, it, it won't melt. But you must have had a cheap, like, Epiphone pot metal uh, bridge, and it just melted from the inside. Yeah, 
it's it's really hard to age chrome. So um, my suggestion is to try it with nickel or get a little more patience and try it uh, mechanically because there's no chemicals that I know of that's going to age the chrome. Yeah. What was his other question? Uh, he wants to wind his own pickups. Where can he find good wire magnets and other parts? Yeah. I like to use uh, Electrosola wire. I use enamel-coated wire uh, from Electrosola. You can get good wire from a few different places on the internet. Remington Industries, uh, BAE Wire, BAE Wire. Uh, they they sell wire on their website. They sell wire on eBay. That's probably, maybe you saw some on eBay um, from Remington Industries or from BAE Wire. Uh, and uh, you can also buy magnets and bobbins from a lot of different places. Um, I know Mojo has them. I think it's just called Mojotone, com. They have pickup kits that are pretty good. I'm almost certain that their magnets are Japanese. Their Alnico is Japanese, and it's good. I prefer uh, USA magnets when I can get them. And the last time I checked, Stuart McDonald's pickup kits had USA-made magnets. Um, But a lot of times I like to just buy raw magnets from different magnet companies. There are a number of them. All-Star Magnetics, I, don't, I can't even remember all of them. There, there's a million of them, but uh, depending on what kind of pickups you're going to make, whether you want Alnico rods or or Alnico bars or whatever you're going to do, um, probably the best way to start, he says he's a beginner, right? Yeah. He wants to wind his own pickups. The best way to start is to probably buy some, uh, some just some, some kits from some somebody like Stuart McDonald. Or Mojo. Uh, really easy to do because everything you need is supplied and the quality is really, really good. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the way I would go. Cool. Yeah. Um, in terms of wire, is there like a certain material that you would avoid or you would go for? Well, yeah, and that touches on his other question. What really makes a bad pickup? What can make them sound muddy and unresponsive? Well, aside from poor winding technique and poor craftsmanship, uh, cheap magnets, low quality wire. Um, uh, that's just, you know, really, I guess, obvious, but yeah, I, I, there are people who claim that they don't hear any difference between good quality wire and bad quality wire, but I, I don't know. I'm going to go with good quality wire if I'm making pickups. It, it's hard to go wrong. I've been very happy with the pickups that I've been making, and uh, I try to go f- for the best quality I can get. Um, if you're just practicing and just starting out, you can buy a spool of cheap wire just to experiment, you know, because the good wire is pretty expensive. Yeah. But there's different coatings is is the main difference. There's oh, okay. e- enamel-coated wire, poly coated wire it's called polysol it means it's solderable 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 polysol there's form var there's all kinds of different wire i like the enamel coated wire because when i look at a 50s fender or 50s gibson they're uh using enamel coated wire and 
those guitars sound really, really good to me, so that's what I use. Yeah. Cool. Um, but, you know, n- not all bad pickups sound bad. Some some bad, cheap pickups, you know, that, that should sound bad, really actually sound pretty good sometimes on accident. But um, it's really probably a lot to do with quality control, because when... When cheap pickups sound good, it was an accident. Right. Right? What you want to do is make good-sounding pickups on purpose. Right. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks, Daniel, in Portugal. Thank you. Hi, Eric. I am a huge fan of the podcast. I've racked my brain for questions to ask, and I have a million, but here is the most recent one that I've been thinking. I build guitars for fun, not to sell. What would you recommend as the best finishing strategy? I build in my basement, and I don't have the space or ventilation for a spray booth, and I've got a toddler running around, so fumes are a concern. I live in Maine, so it's cold much of the year, making outside work difficult. Any suggestions on, on about how to get a quality, durable finish on guitars and necks? I've been working mostly with, with mahogany, local ash, reclaimed fir, and maple. Thanks for your insights, both to this question and for all the advice I've gotten from your podcast. Thanks, Peter, South Portland, Maine. Cool. Thanks, Peter. Uh, that's tough. Um, suggestions on how to get a quality, durable finish on bodies and necks uh, without fumes and without spraying you're you're prob- you're going to have to compromise a little bit. Uh I see here you said you make guitars for fun, not to sell. Um durability is going to be an issue on certain types of finishes, but I really think probably the way for you to go is going to be either uh with shellac, which you could do um without spraying, you could do a french polish with with shellac and shellac is really good to work with because it's uh it's alcohol based so it just smells like you know rubbing alcohol or denatured alcohol it's not a fume that's going to knock you out like i mean spraying anything in your house without fumigation or without ventilation and without harming your family uh, is just not an option. You're just not going to be spraying lacquer or anything like that in there. There's no way. But shellac, you could do... I still wouldn't spray it because it's really going to go everywhere. Um, So I would recommend a French polish uh, technique with shellac. And if you don't know how to do that or if if you need help doing that, uh, I've noticed that there are a bunch of good tutorials on YouTube about uh, French polish technique um, using shellac, and that's what I would do. It's it's uh, it, you end up with a good finish, and it's it's pretty durable. I mean, f- for not being um, a modern, you know, lacquer or poly finish, it's it's it it should be plenty durable, really. Do you know what shellac is? It's the, like beetles or something, isn't it? Yeah, the lac beetle. It's a it's an all natural finish because these little beetles called the lac beetle they eat uh, I don't know if they eat the tree resin or yeah I think they just eat tree resin and then they secrete uh, which might be a fancy word for poop. So you're painting your guitars with poop? it's bug poop. beetle poop. I don't know if it's poop or if it's just a secretion. I really don't know. I feel like secrete never we signals could, anything good. I feel like we could get. 
If we could interview a lac beetle, we could find out. That's a great idea. Maybe that's it for the next podcast. I'll interview a uh, a lac beetle. Perfect. They secrete this stuff, and then uh, that stuff is uh, mixed with denatured alcohol, and it makes a great finish. It's been used way into antiquity. It's been used as a finish on furniture and on instruments forever, for a long, long time. Cool. Yeah, so shellac, that's what I would use, or like an oil-based finish, like true oil, which is also just a rub-on, wipe-on, wipe-off kind of thing. True oil is what they use on gun stocks. Oh. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's linseed oil-based. It's like polymerized linseed oil with probably a few other things in there. Like, there's probably some petroleum distillates in there, so... Uh, it's, it's going to be, it's going to have some fumes more so than the shellac, I think, but, um, that's probably the direction I would go would be the shellac. So try it out. Cool. Yeah. Or, you know, there are, there are water-based paints that you could try, but I wouldn't even mess with it because I don't think they're very good. Yeah. Yeah. Shellac. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for the question, Peter. Keep them coming. Keep the questions coming. I really appreciate all the participation in the podcast. If you want your question used on the podcast, you can submit your question by going to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and submit your question there, or you can call the show at 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and uh, with your comment or question and I'll use it as part of the show uh, and you can text that number as well if you want to do that so 757-774-8482 what's the next question hi Eric just a quick note to let you know that the Fred Files has made it across the pond and reached good old across England the pond yes I run modern guitars in Lytham Lancashire Lytham Lytham uh, that's in the northwest of England, and your Fret Files podcast is on repeat during my drive to work. Cool. Let's plug his website. Yeah, uh, it's uh, www.modern-guitars.co.uk. Cool. Very cool. Uh, an excellent source of knowledge and information. That's the podcast, not his oh, website. Well, I'm sure his website is as yeah, well. I'm sure it is. <laughs> uh, the Gen, as we call it in uh, England. The Gen. Yeah. Is that short for Genesis? I don't know. Probably. Or general? Or general. The gen, as we call it. This is, a, this is bad. The, yeah. We, you can tell that we are very cultured and yeah. have refined English accents. Anyway. Uh, your Fret Files podcast really is an inspiration to, to us who work on guitars and buy and restore them. So I can congratulate you on 10 excellent episodes, but I hope there are many more to come. We hope that, too. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I have a couple of Gibson arch tops from the 1930s and the 1950s I am work on, working on at the moment, and I have a question about a small but poorly repaired split near the F-hole of one of the guitars. It is not a good repair, as it feels raised to the touch on either side of the channel of the split, and there is glue visible in the join. My options are A, leave the split and hope, B, Conceal it in some way. C. Polish it out to lessen its pronounced effect. D. Any other suggestion? 
In the meantime, keep up the good work on your excellent podcast. <laughs> Dave in England at Modern Guitars. Cool, Dave. Yeah, thanks for the question. Dave also sent me a few pictures of this guitar. And so I've seen the repair he's talking about. And yeah, it's it's tough to know what to do with that. Um, I would want to stick a mirror inside, just, ins- just inside there. And uh, where it's split is... Um, coming off of one of the F-holes on an archtop guitar, the wood has split, and then it's been glued back together, and where it's come back together, it's not level. So it's oh. it's been glued improperly. It's cattywampus? Yeah. Um, if you could stick a mirror, like a little dental inspection mirror kind of thing, inside, you could see, hopefully, it hasn't been cleated on the underside, because if it's glued improperly and it's not cleated, I would be tempted to break it open again and line it up properly and glue it properly and then... um, How do you break it open without busting your guitar up? Well, if it's done poorly, uh, that's why I say it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell him what to do because I don't know how solid that repair is. A lot of times you can just tell by putting a little pressure on it. Oh, this is going to open up back again really easily if I just put a little pressure on it here. Um, Or you can uh, take a blade, take an X-Acto blade, and open that thing back up again. You know, it it can be done. It's not for the faint of heart, but it can be done. And then that's what I would be tempted to do, would be to open it back up again and glue it up right so that it's even across, so that it's level across the break. And then uh, at that point, you could touch it up a little bit with some stain if you needed to and uh, uh, a little bit of finish touch-up. But I don't know how crazy you get on repairs, Dave. I don't know if that's something you would want to do. Yeah. Leave the split and hope, he says. Conceal it in some way polish it out to lessen its pronounced effect. I don't know. That's going to be tough, man. If it's really that... If it's if it's uneven enough that you can feel it, I don't think you're going to be able to polish that out. You could just put a decal over it. <laughs> no. Um, just make a giant pick guard just if, to cover that spot. If what you're feeling across that break is mostly glue that's just raised glue and not wood, you could take a razor blade and uh, run it across there to level out the glue that's raised up. Hmm. Very, very delicately, mm-hmm. though. You don't want to... Yeah, just use a razor blade as a scraper to level it out. Um, depending on how bad it is, if it won't break open again, um, you could actually do that anyway if run a blade down there to level it all out and then do some touch-up. I don't know. It's hard to know what to do on that without seeing it in person, but, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Dave in England. Thanks, Dave. All right, next question. Hi, Eric. I have a 2007 American Standard Strat in candy apple red with a three-quarter inch crack in the finish near the neck joint. It seems to be right through the finish with edges that could easily become a chip. Can you make any recommendations for a repair? 
Thanks, Kim. Yeah, that's called a neck joint crack. It's really common on Fender-style guitars or any bolt-on guitar, really. And it's generally just finish deep. It's just in the finish. Um, Usually not structural, but you'll want to check that out. See if it is actually down into the wood. There are parts of a neck joint on a body that get a little bit flimsy, and it might actually be into the wood. But uh, it's usually only in the paint just a surface crack and if it's if it feels like it's gonna become a chip if it feels like it's gonna flake a little bit what i would do would be to seal it up with um super glue and just polish it out yeah you can seal it up with super glue and then sand and polish uh yeah that's that's an entirely uh different realm there if it it depends on how what i was thinking that you could do would be if you have some super glue you can just seep in the crack and then before the super glue sets very quickly with like a q-tip or something clean off the excess glue and you shouldn't really have to polish it out much if you want to make it um go away i mean to the touch so that if you ran your nail across it you can't even feel it then you build up super glue kind of and then kind of like we talked about on the last question um, smooth it out with a blade or with sandpaper, and then polish it. The danger that you run there is going through the finish. Once you go through the finish, especially on candy apple red, uh, then it's game over. That's that becomes a lot more difficult <laughs> touch up. So don't go through the finish if you if you go into that territory. But what I would do if I were you, if you are a uh, if you're just a player and not not a repair guy at all. Um, put a little super glue in there, let it soak in, and then uh, uh, clean off the excess real quick before it sets up with a Q-tip or something like that. And you might want to do it with the neck off because you, what you don't want to do is have an accident and spill some super glue and glue, and glue the neck glue on. your neck onto your guitar. <laughs> yeah, just a thought. Thanks for the question, Kim. Hi, Eric. Thank you for creating this podcast and sharing your guitar tech knowledge and philosophy. Thank you, Melissa, for joining the show. You're welcome. Yeah. Love the genuine interaction between you two as you discuss the topics and engage in friendly banter. Hmm. I'm not sure how friendly it is sometimes. It's totally friendly. I have so many questions to ask, but I'll start with this one. I looked at the custom guitars that you build over at pinupguitars.com. Oh, thanks for plugging my website. Who is this, Byron? Byron, I love your question so far. (laughs) I have to tell you, mentioning pinupguitars.com is so nice. You get gold stars. Absolutely. Pinupguitars.com or pinupcustomguitars.com. Or? Either one will get you there. Well, aren't there other websites that'll get you there? Pinupguitars.com. All right. They are beautiful instruments with a cool, personalized aesthetic. Thank you. But they are also unmistakably very nearly accurate replicas of famous Fender models. Yes, it's true. I saw the disclaimer at the bottom of your webpage, including the specific statement that we use our own headstock profile. Mm-hmm. I've heard nightmarish tales of Fender issuing cease and desist orders or taking even more aggressive action against small custom builders to protect its copyrights. I'd love to hear a detailed explanation of your understanding of the legal issues with this, how different a headstock needs to be, etc. I know you were a guitar builder and technician, not a lawyer, but clearly this is something you've given some thought to. Keep up the great work. 
I look forward to every new episode of The Fret Files. Thanks, Byron. Cool. Thanks, Byron. Yeah, I uh, will admit, absolutely, it's plain to see that what I build are are replicas of Fender guitars from the 50s. Um, however, it has been established in court cases that Fender's really only claim... Uh, when they tried to trademark their their guitar, kind of years later, years later, they went and and started um, going after some of these guys that were, and it was j- the Japanese builders that were building pretty much exact replicas. Companies like Tokai. What the? I this is this is just going off the top of my head. I'm not really really familiar with the court case, but um, what ended up happening, to my knowledge, is that the court decided that the guitars were confusingly similar because of the headstock. And so they decided that um, the headstock profile cannot be confusingly similar to a Fender or whatever guitar that it's looking like. So it's arbitrary? I mean, it's... It is kind of arbitrary in that sense. So if you go look at, say, USA Custom Guitars, they make replacement necks that will work on your Stratocaster or on your Telecaster, and they have very similar headstocks, but they're not exact. And as long as they're not exact, then there's no trademark infringement, as far as I'm aware. And that's that's the phrase that that was said in the lawsuit that it cannot be confusingly similar. But my logo is very different. The headstock shape is different enough that I'm not worried about Fender legal team sending me any cease and desist notices. But there are guys who get away with it. And there are guys who get away with it for years and years. And I don't know how that is because I know there are builders who um, have had Fender legal... Fender's legal team uh, tell them to stop. Wow. Yeah. I know that Big Tex Guitars, Eric Danheim, Big Tex Guitars down in uh, Texas, um, he had Fender contact him and said, nope, you cannot make these guitars. They have Fender headstocks. And so he had to change his headstock. Uh, They gave USA Custom a hard time, made them change their headstocks, you know. But there are companies like Nash who somehow get away with having an exact headstock. And I don't know how that is. I, I really don't. But you can buy you can buy necks that say Fender licensed on them. So you can buy a neck that says Fender licensed. It has the exact same headstock shape. It was not made by Fender. But Whoever made it paid a licensing fee to use the headstock, and so now you can use that neck on your fender. And what I don't get, though, is that you're not supposed to put a logo on it. So, fender put the okay on this neck. It's a fender-licensed neck, and you can use it, but don't put your logo on it. And and so maybe that's how Nash gets around it. He might be using fender-licensed necks, and then... He's not using a logo, so I I don't know. I don't know. It's deep, murky waters, Byron, that I don't want to tread in. So I try to change my headstock enough that 
I don't need to know about it. <laughs> That's basically uh, where I'm at with it. Yeah. It's better safe than sorry. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Byron. Thank you, Byron. Hi, Eric. Brian from Vancouver, Canada here. It was great to have a chance to meet you last week at Emerald City. What a store. It was also great to finally play a few of your pinup guitars on the racks there. Excellent tone, looks, and feel, especially for the price. All right. You may not remember, but you and I exchanged emails many months ago about the guitars. My budget fell through around that time, but I hope one day to have a chance at a pinup. Cool. You know, let me say something here. I... I appreciate him saying uh, that because I've heard a few complaints over the years about the price of my guitars. People saying, two grand. I'm not going to pay that for, for one of your guitars, or that's too much money. I don't know, how, however they say it, you know, little uh, sideways comments about the price being too much. But think about this. Adjusted for inflation, my guitars cost exactly the same as a Telecaster would have in the early 50s. That's that's a really good point. Yeah. And another point that I would like to point out is that I know a lot of people haven't seen my husband make a, make a guitar before, but I've seen him make, you know, tens, tens of guitars, dozens. Tens, <laughs> dozens, yeah. And they take a lot of work. They do, they take each, a lot of work. Each little part is... is, is customized in some way he he rounds the edges on the, the fingerboard by hand before he starts painting it the takes neck. time it takes so much time and he puts so much you know talent and and skill into it that ah shucks thanks i think it's a good price for you guitars. um there are other you know like if you if you look at fender's custom shop they offer similar things and they're about five grand right so, if you think my over, my guitars are overpriced, there's a couple things for you to chew on there. <laughs> Adjusted for inflation, they're, you know, because in the early 50s, you could buy a new Fender Telecaster with a case for 200 bucks. Adjusted for inflation, that's two grand now. But you can also still buy a Telecaster for 200 bucks today. Right. So there's a quality difference. Right? Right. So that's yeah. that same guitar in 19, 1952 would have been 20 bucks. So really you're buying a $20 Telecaster. It's just that inflation has gone crazy and so companies have employed crazy tactics like um bad quality and slave labor uh in order to bring you really cheap guitars. So do you really want a slave labor guitar or do you want something made by a craftsman like me? That's all I'm saying. All right. Let's get on with the question. I'm so sorry to interrupt my own (laughs) show. At the moment, I own a 1975 Greco EG-1000R, a fine Les Paul copy. Its original pickups have been replaced with vintage-style DiMarzio PAFs. From what I can tell, this is an example of the lawsuit era of Japanese guitar making when brands like Greco, Tokai, etc. were building very good knockoffs of Gibsons and Fenders. What's your take on these lawsuit guitars? Have you run across many of them in your work? And if so, what do you think of them in terms of quality, tone, and so on? How do they stack up against the originals? 
I've been a listener from the start of your podcast, and I'm very glad that it's back up and running. I've learned a lot from it. All the best to you and Melissa, Brian. Cool. Thanks, Brian. I've worked on countless lawsuit-era guitars, um, and some of them are great. Some of them are so good that it's really astounding, because at the time, in the 70s, Fender and Gibson, their quality wasn't really that great. Um, so it's pretty cool to see that uh, there were Japanese companies that were actually given Fender and Gibson a run for their money. I mean, some of these guitars are really, really well done. But I've seen others that just weren't good at all. So um, it's like anything else. I mean, these companies like Greco and, and Tokai... Uh, they had different levels of quality. They had a top-of-the-line model, and they had a budget model. So so you see a lot of variation, you know. Um, but, yeah, if you get a good one, they really are pretty nice. Absolutely. I'm a big fan. Um, and we're at a point now where those guitars are vintage. I mean, you know, those are vintage guitars. They're 20, 30, 40 years old, some of them. So, um, uh and they're pretty affordable still. So I'm a big fan of those. I'm a big fan of the Japanese lawsuit era guitars. They're very cool. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Brian. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Love the show. I put together parts casters just for fun, mostly Telecaster style guitars, and I've got it down pretty good. I've been really happy with the last few guitars. Cool. I don't make any of my own parts or pickups like you do, but I buy good quality pre-made stuff, and it was surprising to me when I started how tricky it is to get all the parts to fit just right and work together how they should. Things like the neck pocket fit, neck angle, pick guard fit, jack cup installation, optimum saddle height, and other things can really be a challenge yeah. sometimes. God, am I glad to hear somebody say that. Because I have so <laughs> many people uh, that attempt to put together their own guitar from parts, and they start putting it together and realize that they they just can't make all the parts work together, and so they bring it to me in a basket or a box saying, please make my guitar work, and then I'll put it together and wire it up, make it right, make everything fit. Then they come in and pay their bill, and then they go tell all their friends, check out the guitar I built, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not easy to do. You think that you're going to buy a body and a neck and a pit guard and pickups, and just, you're just going to make this awesome guitar. It's not easy to do, especially when you consider the fact that nobody's parts cross-reference with anybody else's parts. This neck doesn't fit this company's body, and this company's body doesn't fit that company's pit guard, and you really run into trouble. It's it's not easy. Yeah, anyway, anyway. I, I'm interrupting this lovely question. Anyway, here's my question. The one thing I can't f quite figure out is how to stall the neck pickup quickly and easily in a 1950s style telly where the pickup is mounted directly to the wood under the pick guard. I always get it a little off center or mm -hmm. I have to bend the screws to make it fit through the hole in the pick guard mm -hmm. or the pickup ends up sitting a little bit skewed so that the top isn't perfectly perpendicular with the strings or with the pick guard. There's got to be some kind of jig I can build or a trick to yeah. get it installed properly and quickly every time. Any yeah. tips or suggestions? Thanks for the podcast and keep them coming. Brady in Austin, Texas. Cool. That's a great question, Brady, because it is tricky. That 
50-style pit guard goes over the pickup, and the mounting screws are hidden under the pit guard, and they go directly into the wood. It's not a it's not a pit guard mounted pickup. The later style tellies are easy to do. You just mount the pickup in the pit guard, and there you have it. Um, on the fifty style ones, it is tricky. And here's my trick. Here's how I do it. I make sure that um, the neck and the bridge are already installed before I find where the pickup needs to go. So that way, I know I know where the pit guard's going to sit. Right. Once you've got your neck and your bridge on, then you can place the pit guard uh, and see exactly where it's going to be. At that point, bef- this is um, bef- so you're not installing the pit guard yet, but you're just placing it. You can take your neck pickup and instead of putting the mounting screws in it, which are, you know, inch and a half long or whatever, just put two pit guard screws in the holes, little short screws. Put those, put pit guard screws into the bobbin of your pickup and um, place the pickup where it needs to be. Now, put the pit guard over where it needs to be and then place everything. And when you've got it exactly where you want it, take your thumbs and press on that pickup a little bit. And those pit guard screws are going to poke two little holes right where your mounting screws need to go. Take it apart. Take the pit guard screws out. Now you've got two little holes in the neck pickup pocket where those screws need to be uh, mounted. So then you can take your long pickup mounting screws and mount it for real this time. Put it right where it needs to be. Then when you put your pit guard over it, it's exactly where it needs to be. And you get it right every time. Smart. Yeah. Next question. Hi, Eric. I have had a few questions for you to discuss, but I'm bad about remembering them. Guess I better write them down. Here are some. Hold on. Let me uh, let me say one more thing about that last question. Okay. When you press on your neck pickup, do it lightly. You don't want to push hard enough that you that you break the pickup because pickups are pretty fragile. <laughs> Is this speaking from experience? Uh Honestly, I can't really remember ever breaking one. But I just want I'm just imagining people shoving their thumbs into their pickup and breaking it. So don't do that. Right. You should be able to put, you know, light to moderate pressure on the pickup without breaking it, but don't yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that. All right. Disclaimer. Uh, I don't want to be responsible for you having broken your guitar. That's all. <laughs> that's, that's the opposite direction of what we want to do here. Right. All right. Okay, uh, go ahead and start from the top of this next question. Okay. Hi, Eric. I have had a few questions for you to discuss, but I'm bad about remembering them. Guess I better write them down. Here are some. Glues. What type to use, when and where, and for what situations or preferences? Hmm. Is there a tool or tools you spent good money on that you thought you needed, but now you bought it, you don't use it? Let's take these one at a time. Glues. Okay. What type to use, when and where? Um, Man, I love glue. I have so many different kinds of glue. Super glue. Tight bond. Hide glue, Elmer's glue, 
I'll even use epoxy sometimes. And they're all the right glue sometimes. You know? Um, I use super glue probably more than anything. I use super glue for so many things. Uh, I use it to glue things, but I, but I use it for finish touch-ups a lot. I have probably six, seven, eight bottles of super glue at work. Did you know that? Uh, yeah. Do you have different colors? There's super different glue? Col- colors. There's different viscosities. There's li- there's really um, light viscosity, which is like water. There's medium, which is normal. And then there's a gel, a super glue gel. Wow. Yeah. So I've got those. And then I've got white super glue, black super glue. I've got amber-colored superglue. Those are for finish touch-ups. You can even um, you can even repair plastic with it. Superglue is so great, man! I love it. I love it. Uh, and then there's um, hide glue. It really is has been the industry standard for instrument makers for so long, but to use it properly is a real pain in the neck. You have to mix it up fresh. Uh, from flakes, you you heat it up, you, you mix it up with water, and you heat it up in a glue pot to like 145 degrees, I think it is. And you have to use it hot and freshly made. You can't. They do sell uh, shelf stable, so-called shelf stable hide glue in a bottle that's already liquid. But that stuff, I don't trust that stuff. It it I really don't. Uh, it's not, um, it has a shelf life. It has a short shelf life and they have to put, uh, some kind of retardant in there to keep it from setting up because if you mix up fresh hide glue and then let it cool down, it just turns into like rock candy stuff. It's not, it doesn't stay liquid. Right. So room temperature liquid hide glue is not good. I would not recommend using that. If you're going to use hide glue, you have to use it right. You have to use it hot, and you have to mix it up from flakes right there. So if you know if it's such a pain in the neck to use it, do do you do you ever use it? I do. Mm-hmm. I use it. It's it's the preferred thing to use um, when you're working on vintage guitars. I I like to use it on vintage guitars or on on an, on, a, on really nice guitars. Um, if I'm just gluing a brace on a 2014 washburn uh i just use tight bond uh is do you have like you're on a, you're working on a vintage guitar and it has a crack in it and the i don't know the fingerboard is coming off do you use hide glue for both or do you use hide glue for one thing and not for another or? uh it depends on what's it it depends on the situation oh, okay. yeah yeah, but I do prefer to use hide glue uh, on nice and vintage guitars. It's really the right glue to use. Here's the thing about it. Hide glue, when it dries, is just absolutely like crystalline rock hard, which is good for tone. Right. Where tight bond is more of an insulator. Does that make sense? So it's it's it muffles tone instead of transfer right. transfer it. Yeah. Well, 
That it, makes sense. It's kind of rubbery, even when it's fully cured. It's kind of this rubbery stuff. I use so many different kinds of glue. Yeah, that could be a whole show. We could do a whole show on glue. Maybe we should. Yeah, maybe we should. Anyway, go ahead and continue on. Is there a tool or tools you spent good money on that you thought you needed, but now you bought it? You don't use it. Hmm. None that I can really think of, and maybe I'm crazy, but a lot of times I make my own tools. Like, I've made my own, uh, I made my own neck press, neck heat press, um, out of a, Stuart McDonald sells these hollow steel beams that are made for, um, putting sandpaper on and leveling a fingerboard, but I used it. I bought one, and it's a hollow steel rectangular beam that's about the same size as a neck, and I put a heating element in each side of it, and um, then you clamp it to the neck, and you can press heat press a neck to bend a neck or to heat it up to take a fingerboard off or something. And, I, you know, you can buy one of those, but they're probably three, 400 bucks. I made this one for, I don't know, 30 bucks. So a lot of expensive things like like I make my own I made my own pickup winder. So I make a lot of tools. Um I can't think of anything that I spent a bunch of money on that I didn't use. Uh That it might be the wrong question to ask a guy like you though cuz if if you don't know Eric, Eric is a very uh <laughs> cheap frugal. I was going to say frugal. Cheap person. Yeah. And you know, you know I am too. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but uh, yeah, that's all right. Um there are there are a couple real specialty Stuart McDonald kits that I've bought over the years that I ended up not using very much. Like what? Yeah. Uh they sell a bridge plate repair kit that where you can it it goes in it it ho- it scoops out a little hollow in the bridge plate and then cuts a perfectly shaped wood um, plug to fit inside the hollow that you just made and so that you can so that you can patch a bridge plate huh. um, I thought it was real slick when I saw it and I bought it and I think I've only used it two or three times so I guess that counts yeah yeah and it was probably a hundred bucks I don't know huh yeah okay next question the plaque. A much-needed tool, speaking of tools to consider spending money on, or is it overkill and marketing hype for OCD guitar players? Um, yeah, I think that it's a lot of hype. I don't know. Plaque machines are really, really expensive. Can Can you just explain what a plaque machine is? Yeah, a plaque machine, you know when I do a fret level? Yeah. So you to do a fret level, you take a leveling file and you file the frets down and then you take a crowning file and put a, r- a rounded top back on each fret. Right. Well, a plaque machine does that all. Oh. Yeah. It's so like a do- robotic fret leveling oh. thing. You put a neck in there <clears throat> and what it'll do is it, it'll clamp, it'll hold onto the neck and then it will actually bend it just a little bit to simulate string tension and then it'll level the frets, and yeah, yeah. That sounds like it. 
It's extreme overkill, if you ask me. It sounds like it could become too intelligent and take over the world. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about it is that it's become a marketing tool like a, a, a factory a, or a company will buy a Plex machine, and then now it's a marketing thing. All our guitars are plucked. Well, a brand new guitar shouldn't need to be plucked. If you put the frets in right, it, why does it need a fret level? Right. So um, it becomes a marketing thing. And I know Gibson talks about how, I don't know, about all their guitars, but their high-end ones. They, this is plaqued, factory plaqued, and so I'll have people bring in their Gibson, and I'll say this needs a setup, and they say, "How could it need a setup? It's been plaqued." Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it needs a setup. You know, they're really not the same thing. Just because it's been plaqued doesn't mean you know it still needs a technician, somebody like me, to sit down with it and adjust the truss rod and adjust the bridge and adjust the intonation, adjust the action, uh, make sure that all the nut slots are dialed in properly. So all a Plex machine does is is what I do by hand, but it only does a small part of it, so... Huh. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Another good question... When cutting a new nut, do you space the strings evenly on the center or have mm. the same space between the strings, meaning not on center, but the same distance measurement from the outside edge to the outside edge of the adjacent string? Yeah. yeah. From outside edge to outside edge, that's the way to do it. Because the diameter of the string, if you just equally spaced them, then the bass strings seem like they're too close together. It's a very minor difference. Uh... Stuart McDonald makes a wonderful string spacing rule where they've already done all the work for you. You know, you used to have to really you used to have to really figure out okay, this is where this string goes, this is where this string goes uh with like a set of calipers and really figure it out. Uh but Stuart McDonald, all you have to do with the string spacing rule is um mark the outer strings. And they're generally going to be about an eighth of an inch from the edge of the fingerboard. And then once you get those, you take the string spacing rule and you find where those two marks are uh, on the string spacing rule. It's it's a ruler-sized thing with little notches in it. And then you find the correct spacing for the for the nut width that you're doing and then just mark it with a pencil. Easy as can be. That sounds awesome. It is awesome. I have a couple of them. It's a really a great tool, Stumac, Stuart McDonald string spacing rule. They should advertise on the show. Yeah. As as much as I talk about Stuart McDonald, you'd think they were paying me. Well, maybe we should call them. I know they really should. And Diodario strings. That's another. They should. I love Diodario strings. They're so good. They should really advertise. We need advertisers. Yeah. Let's call them. Somebody needs to advertise. We could get uh, we could get Lucky Strike. Yeah. LSMFT. And Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. <laughs> uh, okay, last question here. <clears throat> Given the chance to go spend a week or two with any well-known repair person or shop in the country, who would you like to visit and check out behind the scenes? 
Over the years, I never stopped learning in this trade, and I will learn something new every day. There are some shops and repair persons that I'd very much like to pick their brains and check out. Let me think of more. I'll send them to you. Cool. Regards, Brian Lilge, uh, Guitar Repair in Atlanta. Brian Lilge, Guitar Repair in Atlanta. I've been talking to him on Facebook. He's a really nice guy. Cool. Yeah. Super cool guy. Knows what he's doing, too. Nice. Yeah, I can tell. That's always a good, oh, yeah. a good thing. Absolutely. Um, What was his question? Oh, who would I go like to spend some time with uh, to learn from? Hmm. Well, Dan Erlewine comes to mind. That's a given. That's certainly one. Um, I'd really like to spend some uh, time in uh, some factories. Like, I'd I'd really would have liked to have seen uh, the Jerry Jones factory, but they're closed down now. That would have been cool. Jerry Jones did really cool Dan Electro-style guitars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But as long as we're fantasizing, how about Leo Fender? Sure. I mean, I mean, does it have to be somebody living? <laughs> uh, I would love to go back in time and visit the Fender factory in the 50s. Oh, my God. The things you could learn. The things that people don't know that you could, that you could finally find out. Oh, it would be awesome. Like the D stamp. Do you know what the D stamp is? No. On vintage Fenders, um... It doesn't show up on every guitar, but a lot of them have a stamped D, the letter D, in the butt of the neck or in the neck pocket. Nobody's been able to figure out what that D stamp is for, what it means. What does D stand for? What is it? Is it a quality control thing? How come it's not on all of them? Wow. Yeah. The the great mysteries of guitar. Yeah. Because all these are, there's so many things about Fender that people have figured out, like the neck stamps later in Fender, in the Fender uh, era when they went to um, these coded neck stamps. For years and years, nobody knew what those meant, and somebody finally deciphered them. Like, this is the code for Stratocaster, this is the code for, you know, the week of the year, and this is the code for, uh, it's a fretted, you know, maple neck or this is a code for rosewood neck or anyway i'm getting way deep in the woods here but uh i'd like to go to the fender factory as long as we're fantasizing and i'd love to go to the dan electro factory anywhere else in the 50s oh i'm sure yeah yeah you know here's the other thing anybody that spent a little bit of time repairing guitars and has um gotten a little bit of skill at repairing guitars, I feel like I could probably learn something from just about anybody because everybody stumbles on to, the, to their own crazy um, ideas and things that that nobody else thinks of and, you know, ways to make jigs that, uh, or jigs for things that you just didn't even think about. I think you could learn from just about anybody that's 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 a professional. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Everybody kind of figures out the easiest way for them for them to do it. Yeah. I mean, over time you really um learn what works and what doesn't. And people 
get used to doing different things different ways, and people really hone their skills, and it's amazing what some people come up with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, there you have it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. For the question, Mr. Lilgi. That does it for this segment. Uh, I'll be right back with some uh, with some callers. We have callers. Oh yeah. Sweet. Oh yeah. Don't go away. This is Jay Boone, owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers not only on the West Coast, but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers and service and repair. Well, once again, I've got no interview for you, and my apologies. I uh, I know I've been promising some cool interviews, and I I really do have some that I want to do. I've got about six, actually, um, six different people that I want to interview that uh, I just haven't had time to do the interview. Uh, the interviews take a lot more time, a lot more preparation, a, a lot more... Um, yeah, they just take a lot more effort and time, and uh, I just have not had the extra time to do it. So I apologize if you look forward to those interviews. I will have more in the future, but I think that uh, it's definitely not going to be every episode. So, But I, I do have some calls for you, and uh, let's play those now. Uh, yes, Eric, can you tell us the difference between... Alnico 2 magnets and Alnico 5 magnets and the tonal qualities inherent to each one and maybe some recommendations for applications, you know, what you'd recommend, what kind of guitar you'd recommend to use an Alnico 2 magnet pickup versus the 5, anything in the along those lines. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for calling. You know, when you do call the show or when you send me an email, uh, let me know your name and let me know where you're at. I I really think it's interesting to know um, who's calling and where you're from. So that's a great question. Uh, Alnico 2 versus Alnico 5. Uh, first of all, Alnico is just the name of the metal. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a mix of several metals, aluminum, nickel, Cobalt, copper, iron, uh, sometimes titanium. There's there's other traces, trace minerals in there as well. But um, yeah, Alnico is just an acronym for aluminum, nickel, and cobalt because those are three of the main ones. The main ingredient is actually iron, but uh, uh, it's called Alnico. And the different uh, numbers, Alnico 2, Alnico 3, Alnico 4, Alnico 5... Um, and there's others, uh, but the different numbers, it just denotes the blend of those metals. So, for example, Al- Alnico 2 has more aluminum in it, 
Um, it's got more nickel in it than Alnico 5 and uh, uh, less cobalt than Alnico 5. So it's just a it's just the different blend and and what it goes into the uh, into the recipe to make that that magnet. Um, and the end result is um, they just have different magnetic properties. So, for example, Alnico 5 has got a stronger magnetic pull on it. So um, Alnico 5 has more iron in it. It's about 51% iron, and, and Alnico 2 has uh, uh, about 55% iron. Wait, did I get that backwards? Anyway, they're just different. The composition is different. So they're, they're bound to have different magnetic fields, magnetic properties and different sounds uh they're just eq'd differently so so alnico 5 has tighter low end and and more of like a scooped mid-range sound uh where alnico 2 has uh slightly less output and it's got more um like glassy high end it's uh people associate it more with um a lot of times more of the vintage glassy sound you know and so that's the that's the tonal difference. They're just EQ'd differently. Alnico five has has a little more a little more power to it because it's got a stronger magnetic pull. So Alnico five tends to be just a a little a little louder, a little more punchy, um, and they're just EQ'd differently. So um, a a good way to hear the difference is to to check out some of the pickup manufacturers' websites. They'll have uh, they'll have sound clips. Like if you go to Lawler. Uh, his website, lollerguitars.com, or I think it's lollerpickups.com, L-O-L-L-A-R, and you can listen to a couple of different pickups, some with Alnico 5, some with Alnico 2, some with Alnico 3. The um, the difference is, is not going to be night and day. It's not going to blow your socks off. It's really, uh, they're subtle differences. You know, they're definitely very closely related. Um, there's just slight different uh, uh, compositions in the different metals. So anyway, I hope that helps. And uh, I don't know if it clears things up for you or complicates things, but but uh, yeah, that is my answer. Next. Hey, Eric. Love the podcast. This is Mark in snowy Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, just got a new set. Lawler's yesterday put them in. And I've watched a few videos on pickup height. Now, I know there's all kinds of stuff that says taste, and, and there's sort of uh, schematics of where the things need to be. But I'm just wondering what a pickup actually does and how the height affects the sound of the, of the guitar in the end. Uh, thanks a lot. I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Have a good yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Thanks for calling. And the um, answer is that uh, pickup height has a huge effect on tone, um, and it has a, a big effect on volume as well. Um, the closer your pickup is to your strings, the louder the strings are going to be, uh, and the the farther away, the quieter it's going to be. And then there's also sustain. You'll have more sustain with the pickups closer. The danger that you run into is if they're too close, then the magnet actually interferes with the way that the string vibrates and uh, will create these weird false overtones, these weird wolf tones that that are 
um, make your guitar sound really out of tune and, and uh, warbly, especially on the low strings. And it's more pronounced if a neck pickup is closer because the string vibrates more above the neck pickup than it does above the bridge pickup. And so it's affected more. But, um, of course, you know, if you think about a pickup being a magnet, the magnetic field is stronger uh, right next to the magnet. So as the strings are closer to the magnet, then the pickup is seeing more of the string vibration because the string is is in a more powerful part of the magnetic field. There's just a mag- there's a magnetic field around your pickup, this invisible field, and the strings are passing through that magnetic field and creating a disturbance in the magnetic field, and that gets translated into a signal by the coil that's going around the magnet because that's also in the magnetic field. It's really a an ingenious thing, and it's it's uh, amazing that that people even created this and it's only been a hundred years or so uh, since this technology was created so it's yeah it's I, I find it fascinating but definitely proximity makes a big difference how close your pickups are to your strings um, and the best way to uh, to hear that is just to experiment with it yourself you know raise your pickups up a little bit, lower them down a little bit, and uh, listen to what that's doing to your tone. On most guitars, it's very easy to do just with a couple of turns of a, of, of the pickup mounting screws. Some guitars, it's a little harder, but most guitars, it's really easy to do and really easy to hear what it does to your tone. Some people, some people like the pickups a little farther away, and some people like them a little closer. So uh, just experiment and see what you like. Thanks for the question, man. Hey Eric, this is Mark in Foggy, Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, second time caller. I have a question for you. I think I'm abusing the line, but when I I put in a new capacitor the other day, and now in my Stratocaster, and now when I turn the uh, tone pot for the neck pickup all the way down, it cuts out all my signal and i'm wondering if you had any ideas as to what's going on uh thank you very much i'll hang up and listen to your answer oh i'm sorry you're only allowed one call per show <laughs> uh no that's great that's great call as many times as you want and uh i love that you approached it as though it's a live call-in show thanks i'll i'll take my answer off the air uh yeah well it sounds to me like you've got either uh, there's one of two things. You've either got a bad capacitor in there or it's wired improperly so that the uh, tone pot is shorting to ground when you go all the way down with it. Either way, your your tone pot is acting like a volume control, and that's because you've either got a bad capacitor in there or you wired it improperly. So, um, yeah, really easy to tell. Swap out the capacitor. Hopefully it was a cheap one. If if you're a fan of this show, you probably didn't buy a $50 one. <laughs> but hopefully it's a cheap one, and you can just, uh, uh, you should be able to test really easily. You know, if you know what you're doing on the wiring, um, then uh, it probably wasn't the wiring. And if you just replaced the existing cap and it worked before, then uh, I bet you you've got a bad cap, and that is not unheard of. It's pretty common. And so what it what it did is, is it turned your tone control into a volume control yeah so check it out 
Well, all right. That wraps up this show. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your participation. And thanks to Michael Van Dieven over at ufoship.com for um, his continued support in giving us a giving this podcast a place to live on the internet. And thanks to Emerald City Guitars for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, thanks to the Fretboard Journal over there. Jason Verlindi um, has been promoting this podcast on his podcast, and I really appreciate it. If you don't subscribe to the Fretboard Journal, you really should. It's a beautiful magazine. And also check out their podcast. Jason Verlindi does a really cool podcast. I think you'll really like it if you don't already. If you don't already subscribe, you should. Uh, send in your questions. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and I will use your question or comment as part of the show. Or you can call 757-774-8482. Call or text any time of day or night. I'll use your question or comment as part of the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. <laughs>